Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 54, talking about a revolution, the updated chemical laboratory with new and cool instrumentation. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. Over the course of the 20th century so far, I have hinted at the drastic changes coming in chemical laboratories. This episode will lay out many of those changes away from the stereotypical array of glassware and analytical balances, which are still necessary in many laboratories, and toward inserting a sample into an electronic instrument, giving a readout to be interpreted by the chemist. Some of the bits and pieces I've mentioned already, but we gather them here to show that all of these electronic advances happened within a few decades and changed laboratories forever or, as the title of this episode refers to, the instrumental revolution. The first changes we heard about a while ago. In the middle of the 19th century, Bunsen and Kirchhoff invented spectroscopic analysis, which was mainly for determination of various elements in a sample. This was excellent at finding out if a commercial product was doped with unsafe materials or discovering new elements. Then, at the beginning of the 20th century, Spectroscopic analysis began shifting to how chemical samples absorb infrared light and how that could tell chemists not what elements or atoms were present, but larger units, that is, groups. The first practitioner of this art was William Koblenz. We heard about how infrared, or IR for short, light excites particular vibrations in molecules, which might be double-bonded carbon to oxygen, or a carbon connected to a chlorine, or a hydrogen connected to a nitrogen, and so on. Using this technique, chemists can winnow down to a small possibility of structures that a molecule can have. IR spectroscopy can also provide quality control, and indeed, initial commercial uses for infrared spectroscopy included testing to see if petrochemicals were of high quality. The first commercial infrared spectrometers were sold in the early to mid-1940s. The firm Perkin Elmer came out with a low-cost IR spectrometer in 1957, making it within reach of many typical chemistry laboratories. We heard briefly of pH a while back and how Arnold Beckman invented the first electronic pH meter, or acidometer, in 1934. Let's delve a little deeper. Beckman's work directly affected agriculture, and in this case, citrus fruit grown in California. One of Beckman's college friends, Glenn Joseph, was a chemist at the California Citrus Growers Association. The amount of citric acid affected how ripe citrus fruit is. Lower quality citrus is made into pectin and citric acid, while higher quality fruit is good for direct human consumption. Therefore, 
citrus farmers needed some quality control over what their fruit was doing in the field to determine how it should be processed. You might think that back in the bad old days, you can just use, like in high school or in a chemistry set, a piece of litmus paper which changes color depending upon the acidity. Except that sulfur dioxide was a common preservative, which bleaches litmus paper, rendering it useless. Beckman himself was a chemist, but had worked at Bell Labs for a couple of years, where he became familiar with the new principles of electronic amplification using vacuum tubes, which were commercially incorporated into radio sets at the time. Because pH is a measure of hydrogen ion concentration. Beckman used a weak electrical current to measure pH, and a strong vacuum tube amplifier to make the signal strong enough to register on a calibrated scale. He put the whole unit into a walnut wood case. This was the first electronic pH meter. Optical and ultraviolet spectroscopy also began to be used in the earlier part of the 20th century, as we heard of in a previous episode. Such spectrometers are valuable in determining structures of certain organic molecules, especially with alternating single and double bonds like vitamin A, as well as brightly colored inorganic coordination complexes. Arnold Beckman's company. Which pioneered the electronic pH meter, also invented the first commercial UV visible spectrophotometer in 1941, and we heard about this in an earlier episode. The first mass-produced cheap UV visible instrument was Bausch and Lomb's Spectronic 20, which some of you who have taken undergraduate science laboratory classes may have encountered, often informally called a Spec 20. Another piece of apparatus that was invented in the early 20th century was the mass spectrometer. We heard about one of Ernest Rutherford's proteges, Francis Aston, creating the first workable mass spectrometer just after World War I. The American Alfred Nier pushed harder for its use in the 1930s, and assisted the Kellex Corporation on building mass spectrometers. For the Manhattan Project in World War II, specifically for isolating uranium-235, the fissile isotope of uranium in the atomic bomb, the first commercial mass spectrometer was marketed by Westinghouse Electric in 1941. While the mass spectrometer was originally used to separate charged isotopes of certain elements. The petroleum industry began to investigate its power in studying whole molecules in the 1940s. The entire molecule would have to be ionized, but that could mean just removing one electron. However, often molecules fell apart when ionized, and chemists at the time didn't understand what was going on. That is, how the ions rearranged after self-destructing. Analyzing how molecules disintegrated under influence of such electric fields was a topic of research in the late 1940s and early 1950s, 
but chemists were largely wary of this black box technique. The first scientific symposium on the topic was held in 1954, the annual conference on mass spectrometry and allied topics, which helped to dispel a bit of the mystery. But ultimately, it fell to three chemists to begin promotion of mass spectrometry as a valid tool for determination of molecular structure. They were American Fred McLafferty, Austrian American Klaus Biemann, and Austrian Bulgarian American Carl Gerasi. Now, I mentioned Gerasi already as having collaborated later in life with Roald Hoffman on the play Oxygen. What these three chemists did was to show systematically how molecules break apart, fragment under the influence of electric fields inside a mass spectrometer, and work backwards from these detected fragments what the original molecular structure must have been. There is another powerful tool used by chemists that was invented in the 20th century: nuclear magnetic resonance. You may have heard of a direct descendant under the less scary-sounding name MRI or magnetic resonance imaging, but it's a form of nuclear magnetic resonance just the same. This one depends directly on quantum theory for interpretation. Here's what it is. We recall that in the 1920s, physicists realized that electrons act as though they spin. Although to this day electrons are understood to be point-sized particles, and how a point which is not a sphere can spin is beyond me. So, let's pretend that what physicists call spin can be modeled as though there is a nanoscopic blob doing the spinning. This was actually demonstrated by German physicist Walter Gerlach in 1922, and is now called the Stern-Gerlach experiment. The German-American physicist Otto Stern came up with the idea the previous year. The electron spin was quantized into two states: up or down, or plus one half and minus one half, or one direction and the other. If the electron is spinning, it has a magnetic moment. In any case, during the 1930s, scientists found that atomic nuclei also have spin. So they have a magnetic moment. Now, nuclei are not point particles, so it's easier for me to imagine them spinning. Austrian-American Isidor Rabi shot lithium chloride through a strong magnetic field. The spinning nucleus's magnetic moment interacts with this field. Visually, you might think of it vaguely like a gyroscope with rotational inertia interacting with gravity. And the gyroscope starts to precess, or wobble, or slowly shift its rotational axis direction. Similarly, the nucleus's rotation precesses. At right angles to this field, Rabi applied another magnetic field, but oscillating at three and a half megahertz. While it starts getting complicated for our purposes, We can say that the nuclei's magnetic moments start absorbing energy at the resonance frequency, and this absorption you can measure as a drop, like an absorption peak in a spectrum. 
Robbie called this scheme nuclear magnetic resonance. By 1945, Edward Purcell and Robert Pound at MIT built what's considered to be the first nuclear magnetic resonance instrument using radio waves to detect absorption by hydrogen nuclei in wax. Simultaneously, Felix Bloch at Stanford built an NMR machine to detect hydrogen nuclei in water. They published their papers in the same January 1946 issue of Physical Review. But what does this have to do with chemistry? In 1950, at Stanford University, graduate student Warren Proctor was studying magnetic resonances of all sorts of stable atomic isotopes nuclei. He wanted to measure the nitrogen 14 nucleus carefully to use as a reference value. What compound could he use to dissolve water? He wandered into the chemistry stockroom and found ammonium nitrate, which was water soluble and had two nitrogen atoms per formula unit. Weirdly, in the NMR machine, he found not one resonance peak, but two. He got his professor to get some nitrogen 15 isotopes from Emilio Segre, whom we met as the discoverer of technetium and now at the University of California. They got chemists to synthesize ammonium nitrate with only nitrogen 15 and put that into the NMR. They got the same two peaks. Clearly, the peaks were related not to the isotope itself, but the environment the isotopes were in. That is, the ammonium nitrogen had a slightly different peak resonance than the nitrate nitrogen. We call it a chemical shift of the resonance peak. Once word of this chemical shift got out to chemists, it was tested and found to be applicable to hydrogen nuclei. Therefore, on, say, ethanol, CH3, CH2OH, there are three peaks one for the hydrogens on the CH3 part, one for the hydrogens on the CH2 part, and one for the hydrogen on the oxygen part. Each of these groups of hydrogen nuclei exists in a different chemical or molecular environment, so has a different resonance peak. And hydrogens are very, very common in organic compounds, so being able to differentiate chemically the various hydrogens in a molecule is a most attractive proposition. Now, it's even more interesting. With a strong enough magnetic field, These peaks even split into clusters of peaks. After work by chemists to determine some visual rules for how these peaks and clusters of peaks exist in an NMR spectrum, it's now a common theme in, say, an undergraduate organic chemistry laboratory to run an NMR spectrum and be asked to interpret the results, predicting a molecular structure. The first commercial NMR instrument was sold by Varian Associates in 1952, primarily again for the petroleum industry. But the technique was so powerful in determining molecular structure that demand for NMR instruments grew, and Varian built the A60 model in 1961, which became a workhorse for many chemical laboratories around the world. One caution around NMR instruments, they do use very strong magnets, and so you want to avoid bringing ferromagnetic tools into their instrument rooms. 
When the instrument is operating, the tools can fly off a desk and hit someone. Pacemakers are also affected. In an earlier episode, I mentioned how proteins were first sequenced using chromatography, which is a kind of analytical separation, for you are separating the chemicals in a mixture. Obviously, the earliest separations known since ancient times were distillations, but here we are talking about a particular type of instrument, a chromatograph. For gas chromatography, we inject a liquid or gas sample. To analyze into an unreactive carrier gas, which passes the sample through a stationary phase in a column or generally a tube. The stationary phase is a viscous liquid confined to a surface of solid particles. The different chemicals in the sample go through the column at different speeds, and so you can detect them separated as they leave the column. The earliest gas chromatograph was built in 1947 by German chemist Erika Kremer and Austrian graduate student Fritz Preyer. Kremer exhibited her gas chromatograph at the Akema Chemical Exhibition in 1952 in Frankfurt, but there was little interest. The Czech chemist Jaroslav Janák invented his own version in 1952 because of Cold War trade restrictions. And word of this work increased interest, and the first commercial gas chromatographs appeared. By the 1961 Akema exhibition, there were 27 companies showing off their gas chromatographs. There are other ways to do chromatography, such as on gels, which began in the mid 1950s. Ion exchange chromatography is based on the principle that you can separate out. Chemical components with electric charges. You pull off chemicals with a positive charge in a negatively charged substrate in your column, and those with a negative charge in a positively charged substrate in your column. To adjust the charges, you can change the pH of the solution carrying the sample. Typically, you use this method for biological compounds and polar molecules, for example, proteins. Which have lots of hydrogen ions that can come off the molecule, depending on the pH of the solution. The first report of this technique came at the semiannual national meeting of the American Chemical Society in New York in September 1947, using ion exchange methods to separate rare earth elements, which are difficult to separate under normal circumstances. These are some of the fancy instruments that began to take over chemical laboratories and displace, in the mid 20th century, traditional methods of chemical analysis with glassware and reagents. They required electrical power to operate, which often was not available in laboratories till the 20th century, and electronics initially in the form of vacuum tube technology, which were not even invented until the 20th century. The mid 20th century was a true revolution in chemistry, not in the theoretical sense of Lavoisier or Dalton, or based on the new quantum mechanics, but of analysis and observation techniques and machinery. 
Of course, starting in the 1970s, many of these instruments began to be computer controlled, but we haven't reached that point in chemical history yet. To sum up, among the instruments that began to appear in 20th century chemical laboratories were infrared spectrometers, visible ultraviolet spectrometers, nuclear magnetic resonance instruments, chromatographs, whether gas based, liquid based, ion based, or other based, mass spectrometers, pH meters. During my graduate school experience, for example, we had almost no chemical glassware, but we did have a benchtop computer controlled infrared spectrometer, among other equipment that I hope to describe in later episodes. During a postgraduate year of research I spent in England, the equipment included optical ultraviolet spectrometers. The specialization of laboratories, depending on their precise area of research, meant that different labs would have different types of instruments depending on what it is they wanted to observe or measure. No chemical laboratory is exactly like any other. In our next episode, we turn to the very beginnings of materials chemistry. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.